Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Today, I'm joined again by Dr. James Conka, who's a scientist in the field of earth and environmental science, specializing in geologic disposal of nuclear waste, energy research, planetary surface processes, and radiobiology. As you remember, Jim was just with us a couple weeks ago talking about nuclear waste, and I'm very excited to have him back, really by popular demand, as that episode was one of our most highly downloaded. Jim, um, thank you so much again for coming back on Decouple. You're welcome. That's nice to hear, too. Absolutely. So today um, we're going to be exploring another uh, topic, which is, um, you know, not very contentious at all. Um, And that has to do with the relationship between nuclear weapons and civilian nuclear energy. And in particular, we're going to be talking about, I think, what is perhaps one of the least known but greatest source to plowshares program in human history, um, the megatons to megawatts program. Um, So stay tuned, folks. This is going to be a really interesting episode. Um, Jim, you were just mentioning in our sort of pre-recording chat that today is the anniversary of the 75th anniversary of the Nagasaki bombing. Is that right? Yes, indeed. You know, earlier this week, I think we were reminded of power, not, not of a nuclear explosion, but just seeing those images coming out of Beirut, you know, with the windows being blown out, seeing mushroom clouds. I think the most poignant thing was seeing a, a wedding a photo shoot being interrupted by the explosion. It was a real, I think, reminder of the enormous destructive power that that humans have um what were your thoughts when you saw the images of the explosion in lebanon yeah my first thought was nuclear weapons wow (laughs) not 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 that i thought it was but that it had you know the 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 characteristics of it although much smaller Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so in terms of the that i mean there were just so many uh smartphones pointed on this thing i think because it was smoldering for a while first right and then we saw that flash and the uh the mushroom cloud and the concussion blast. Um, It was just, yeah, pretty wild to see that. Um, You can only imagine if there were smartphones around Nagasaki because people wouldn't have time to take a picture at that point. (laughs) Conventional one was much, uh, much more time controlled, but yeah, absolutely. uh, Absolutely terrifying. How, how did the, um, the yield of that Lebanon blast compare to something like Nagasaki or Hiroshima? Uh, It was about 7,000 times smaller. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, see, the, one th- let, let me just start off with, with bombs, with, with nuclear weapons. The n- idea of a nuclear weapon is it is a huge bomb. It has nothing to do with radiation. It's a huge bomb. And that's, you know, if you get back to the mindset of Albert Einstein and, and um, Fermi and the others in the late 30s and early 40s, the whole idea was this is a bomb, okay? Radiation was incidental. And people don't get that because we've got this fear of radiation that outweighs everything else. But when when Hiroshima and Nagasaki went off, um, 97% of the deaths was due to the bomb, not the radiation, due to the bomb. Okay. Mm-hmm. And since that was since they both were about 13 kilotons, and the kiloton terminology means kiloton equivalent of TNT. So if you could put 13,000 tons of TNT in one spot and ignite it all in one microsecond, you get the same mushroom cloud, the same destructive. You could not tell the difference between that 
and a 13,000, a 13 kiloton atomic weapon, except at the edges. Okay, the blast goes out about 10 kilometers or so. And at the edges, you when the blast stops, you have a little burst in that microsecond, not later, in the microsecond, you have a burst of high energy neutrons and gamma rays. They, they go out another three kilometers. But it drops off as you know one over r squared, so you know right at the edge of the blast, it's it's you know, the, the radiation is large, and then it drops off three kilometers. It's nothing. So, so people think that the radiation killed a lot of people, and it did not. So when we talk about the Japanese bomb survivors, we're talking about the people that were in that three kilometer annulus or donut, um, where the blast ended, but the radiation went out, and we talk about those people. Okay, so those are the Japanese bomb survivors. That is our main source of data for the for the um, health effects of radiation. Period. That's our that's our main source of data, um, as well as medical stuff, a few things. But that's mainly what we use because there were seventy nine thousand Japanese bomb survivors, and of them, fourteen um, percent of them got cancer later. Not all of them, 14%. And the average loss of life was one year. So of those 79,000, there was an average loss of one year of their life. Now, that's bad, horrible, um, but it's not at all what people think, right? You wouldn't mm -hmm. know that, right? I mean, it, you know, it's, it was a bad thing, horrible thing, but it was a bomb. So... Uh, so when we talk about weapons, we're talking about bombs. Now, in World War II, we we did so much more destruction, 10, 20 times as much destruction with conventional weapons as we did with those two nuclear weapons. They were not the main thing. Okay, so so people, you know, also think, oh, they killed more than, you know, the weapons were killed and destroyed more than everything else. It's like, no, it didn't. They were just a small part of the destruction we rained down on Japan. And so, I mean, that, that fear of, of radiation, um, you know, and, and I think a lot of the sort of cultural reverberations through time in terms of the creation of monsters like Godzilla, I think there's been a lot of sort of um, analysis of this in the humanities, um, looking at just the cultural phenomenon of fear in relation to the bomb. Um, you know, I remember, I think, I think if I'm remembering correctly, one of the really potent um, tools that was used to try and shut down the atmospheric testing of, of nuclear weapons was the finding of kind of new radioisotopes, you know, that were kind of prolific, that were everywhere in terms of, I think, strontium um, being in, you know, milk and in the bones of all humans and things like that. Um, you know, this, these are some of the things that I think really helped leverage political support to, to stop testing weapons. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. Plus you probably talked about the linear, no threshold dose hypothesis, LNT. Have yeah. you talked about that at all? That, that uh, was the real, then in fact, Russia and China used LNT to stop the United States from above ground nuclear tests. And that came after, um, you know, uh, Casa Bravo. So, you know, the, the huge debacle. That was the mother of all bombs, right? Mother of all bombs. And and it it occurred, the devastation there occurred because we did not know how big the bomb was gonna be. So we we did it, we exploded it, ignited it, whatever we want to call it, uh, too low to the ground. Okay. 
And so was this, amount, was this the first like thermonuclear weapon, like a fusion no, bomb? No, or, it, no, it was, it was one of our last. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, but it, it, it was a fusion bomb. Yeah. So it yeah. was, it was well over 10 megatons. I can't remember exactly 15 or something like that. Um, Russia exploded one that was even bigger, but that was our biggest. And because it was so big um, and we, 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 we exploded it too, too close to the ground. There was a lot of fallout, and that went over the Bikini Islands and the Marshall Islands, and the people got a huge hit of radiation, and that, that was bad. Okay. Now, the thing about fallout, also people do not understand, if you use an atomic bomb correctly, there's almost no fallout. Did you know that? I did not know that, no. Almost no fallout. All the science fiction, okay, with all this fallout and death zones you know, dead zones for 50,000 years. That's all nonsense. Um, you notice Nagasaki and Hiroshima, they're totally built up. There's no dead zones there. And we exploded two atomic weapons there. So where is the dead zones? Where's all the radiation? It wasn't. Because when you explode the bomb at the correct height to maximize the yield, okay, the yield is the power, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to maximize that. If, if you're going to use these, which you shouldn't, but if you use them, you want them to work, right? And you want them to work well. So, so you want to maximize the yield, the bomb part of it, not the radiation. So, so when you do it at the right height or higher, um, there's almost no fallout because nothing is sucked up from, from, from the ground. Okay, mm, almost okay. nothing is sucked up from the ground. So we, if you're too close to the ground for that yield, then there's, there's a bunch of material, soil, you know, broken things, wood, whatever, gets sucked up into the mushroom crown and becomes radioactive. And that is... The fallout. So Casa Bravo had huge fallout. Now we we um, detonated a thousand above ground nuclear tests uh, wow. in general, and 998 of them had no fallout to speak of. Okay, so all the downwinders in in Utah, they didn't get any dose. Okay, and they don't have any increased cancer rates, although we pay them, we pay them a lot of money. Um, I don't mind paying sick people money, but I mind saying it's because of radiation. So, so Utah, you know, has the lowest cancer rates in the country, and St. George, which is the, you know, the premier downwinder fallout zone. Uh, has the second lowest cancer rates in Utah. So there, there was no increase in cancer rates from, from fallout. You would see that. It's easy to see that. Uh, so that's kind of where, where, where it is. Now, in, there's no justification for using nuclear weapons now. I mean, there wasn't even after that. And Nagasaki was foolish. Um, just just on the topic of you know the, the devastation of these bombs in terms of their explosive power, and we were talking about you know the radiation being sort of the least of the concerns if you're right. anywhere near one of these things going off. Um, people talk a lot about nuclear winter. Is that a um, thing or it, not? It was a thing. I, I remember Sagan, I, I worked with his second wife actually on Origin of Life on Earth. It was interesting. And um, the idea that if you put um, a lot of dust and debris into the atmosphere, you'll block sunlight and the temperature will cool. That is true. In fact, that is the basis for what we call solar geoengineering. Do you know that term? Uh, yeah, where we act, yeah, we yeah. purposely put stuff into the atmosphere, small particulates, in order to reflect light. That's pretty much the only way we're going to get a handle on, on climate change uh, in the next 30 years. Um, that's a whole other podcast. And 
<laughs> we'll have you back for episode three on that. Another, another non-controversial topic. With uh, and so, so the idea that yes, when when you explode a bunch of nuclear weapons, that then that'll throw a bunch of material up into the stratosphere, and and that's true. Okay, but you'd have to do a lot of nuclear weapons, and that's what Sagan was talking about when he came up with that. Is the fact that if you have a nuclear war between the United States and Russia, um, and you set off twenty thousand nuclear weapons. Yeah, you're going to have a cooling of the earth for quite some time. That would be the least of our problems. I mean, I always thought that was almost funny. It's like, okay, you, we're going to destroy the earth with nuclear weapons, and you're worried about, you know, nuclear winter. Oh, come on. So, um, so that's kind of kind of it. Now, it also takes only a few years for those for that material part particulates to come out of the atmosphere, and they come out usually over the ocean. So it's only cooling for three or four years. So, okay, right. that's a big thing. So I wouldn't worry about nuclear winter. It's not an issue because um, if we explode that many nuclear weapons, we have a lot worse things to worry about. Now, we have gotten rid of 90% of our nuclear weapons. At that time, there was about 100,000 nuclear warheads and bombs between the United States. And- so, you know, as... as um- Nuclear weapons technology proliferated. Um, I think it went to Russia and then the UK and then I think France. But nuclear energy, civilian nuclear energy, um, if I'm correct, didn't didn't begin until 1957. I think right. with the shipping port right. reactor. Is that right? So historically, I guess since since the advent of civilian nuclear energy, what's what's been the link between nuclear weapons programs and there civilian nuclear been. There energy? There is no link. Um, except the basic science. So you have people that are trained in nuclear science and nuclear engineering, and those people can apply it in various ways, right? Uh, you can apply it for weapons, for energy, or for medicine. So uh, no one has ever made a bomb out of commercial spent fuel, because you can't, okay? And the reason you can't is because of um, what's called... Uh, nuclear poisons. Should I take four minutes and go over how a nuclear weapon works? (laughs) Okay, okay, good. Yeah, absolutely. So going way back to 6.3 billion years ago, in the vicinity of our condensing solar nebula, there was a supernova explosion. And that's the only way you can make heavy elements, okay, is in a supernova. All right, you, you can't get above iron without having a supernova. So anything like uranium or, or thorium or anything heavy. And for, for dummies, a supernova is, is just massive a massive nuclear, nuclear explosion. explosion right. where, where the pressures are so high that you can stuff nuclear uh, uh, neutrons into a nucleus. You know, you can stuff thousands of them. So after uh, uh, during a, a supernova explosion, um, you probably make... Thousands of new elements, elements we don't know. Okay, you because the half they're all so unstable that the half life is you know microseconds. So you make them and you and, yeah. and they fall away, and and as that goes out, um, that material goes out. The short you know longer longer half lives uh, go out too. So things with you know a thousand year half life, well they're gone. We're talking about space, so. What's left are things like uranium and thorium that have billions of years half-life, potassium-40, billions of years half-life. So uranium, so, so all, all this heavy stuff was blown into our condensing solar nebula, and that's what the Earth is made of. 
Okay, all the stuff that's you know above carbon can't be made by our sun or, or any ordinary star. It has to be made in in a supernova explosion. So so all those heavies formed us, and then we condensed, and the Earth formed, and blah blah blah. Now uranium has several isotopes, and the two natural ones, uranium-235 and uranium-238. Now, actually, they're in, in intermediate, like 234 and stuff that exists, but those are during the decay of those two. So um, uranium-235 has a half-life of 700 million years. Pretty long, right? Um, 238, it's 4 billion years. So since that 6.3 billion year half-life, Uranium-235 has gone through seven, I'm sorry, nine half-lives, whereas uranium-238 hasn't even gone through, has only gone through one, one in, in a part. So most of the uranium Earth is uranium-238 because it has such a long half-life. Now, to have a uncontrolled or controlled chain reaction, you need uranium-235 because it is less stable. If you hit uranium-235, and plutonium-239, but uranium-235, with a neutron, it will split into two pieces, two unequal pieces called fission products, right? One is about mass 90, the other is about mass 140. So, uh, because uranium is 235, so that's mass. That's, that's the amount of protons plus neutrons, so it's this mass. So, so, so you hit it. Now, when you, when you hit 235 with a neutron, it splits it to two pieces, and you get three neutrons out. Okay, statistically speaking, 2.7, but we'll talk about three. So one in, three out. That's, that's why this works, okay? Such a deal. So if you have a bunch of 235 and your neutron comes in, hits one, you get three neutrons out. Those three neutrons then see 235, so they split. Then you're at nine, 27, 81, boom. In a microsecond, if it's all 238, 235, sorry, um, then you have 10 to the 20 neutrons and 10, 10 to 20 splits, right? So that's why a uranium bomb has to be all 235, over 93%, okay? So that you just hit it with neutrons and the whole thing goes off at once. And in a microsecond, mm -hmm. that's that's where the power is. And the power has nothing to do with the neutrons. The power of a blast, the, bla the yield of a nuclear weapon has to do with those two fission products, those two pieces flying apart, okay? If you have 10 to the 20... Yeah, so it, it's oh, a okay. kinetic weapon. It's a kinetic energy weapon. And so if you have 10 to the 20 <laughs> of these going apart, you know, flying apart at near light speed, then you're going to have a lot of pressure and a lot of heat. And that's what a bomb is. Now, if you're fuel, then you're, you're, you only need to enrich to have a controlled chain reaction, not an uncontrolled, but a controlled chain reaction in, in, a, in a power reactor. You only need 3 to 5%. 235. So the whole thing is mainly 238. And 238 does not split easily when hit with a neutron. So if you have a neutron hit a 235, those three neutrons that come out generally will not see another 235. They'll see a 238. And that captures right. that neutron and double beta decays quickly to form plutonium, 239. Okay, so you're in, in a reactor, you're breeding 239 plutonium. That's what breeding means. Okay, so you're breeding 239 plutonium from uranium 238. Now, plutonium 239 splits even better than, 230, than uranium 235. So as soon as it starts forming, it starts burning too. And after two years in a nuclear reactor, 
power reactor, you're getting more energy out of the plutonium you bred than out of the original 235 you started with. Okay, now after okay. six years, yeah. these fission products, most of which are not even radioactive or, or have half-lives that are seconds, um, you, they build up. You get too much junk in there. They scarf up too many neutrons and the thing fizzles out. Okay. So it's not that it's spent. It's just you get too much junk in it. You can recycle it, take out the junk, make new fuel, whatever. Um, don't recommend that. We got too much uranium to speak of. So um, now the problem is after six months in a reactor like that, you also start breeding in other isotopes of plutonium, 240, 241, 242. Um, and those don't split either. They're called neutron poisons. So if you're trying to make a bomb, and what we did at Hanford up here was make the plutonium for the bombs. Okay, so in a in a weapons reactor, which is completely different than a power reactor, you don't make electricity. You can if you wanted to, but generally didn't. Um, you you simply want to breed plutonium. Now the problem is you have to run the reactor for six months, no longer. You have to take the fuel out before six months, before you start breeding in the plutonium poisons, okay? Then you can separate the plutonium, and that's fine. If the problem with commercial fuel is that you bred in so many plutonium poisons that you can't separate them like you can uranium-235 from 238, and so you can't make a bomb from it. We tried. We tried in the 60s. Failed miserably. And so no one has ever made a bomb from spent nuclear fuel from a commercial reactor. They know that. And, and so they go the traditional route of having a weapons reactor. And in general, uh, you, you, have, you use a, a graphite to moderate a weapons reactor instead of water. That's why Chernobyl was so stupid, because it was really a weapons reactor. People don't realize that. It was supposed to make a ton of plutonium, which it did. Um, at that time, they didn't need it. So it's just a, a horrible thing. Um, and they were using graphite because they wanted to make a lot of plutonium. So, so that that's mm -hmm. it. So, um, North Korea when they went, you know, weapons, they want they want they want to missileize their atomic weapons. So of course it would be plutonium, and of course they just made a weapons reactor like we did at Hanford. So they didn't even bother to have commercial, you know, nuclear weapons. We we know a commercial nuclear reactor. We know that no one's fooled. No one in the nuclear community is fooled by a, a commercial nuclear program secretly making weapons. Okay, we know. So why, why is that? Is, it's, is it because of our ability to detect various radionuclides with such sensitivity that we can always sort of have a handle on yes, it? Yes, as, are, well, are, as, surveillance. Are, are as well as surveillance. As well as surveillance. We can see if, you, if you're taking the fuel out after six months versus six years. <laughs> okay, so it's pretty easy. Huh. Um, and how do we um, see that? We, we what can does see that look like? things moving around on the ground from satellite. If you have web inspectors like AEA, uh, which which the Iran deal was so good, that's why I'm so upset that we stopped that because it was such a brilliant mm -hmm. deal. Um, it's hard to it's hard to fake it. So um, so anyway, so so that's that. So the people that have weapons, there's nine countries that have nuclear weapons, um, and they all went nuclear. You know. Uh, weapons reactors to do it. They they didn't they didn't bother. And having civilian nuclear energy opens you up to all of these inspection yeah. regimes and and basically puts the eyes of the world on you. Yeah. So you're unlikely to want to go that route if you right. just want to bomb. Right. I guess. And and so you know and nuclear power is great. I mean, so the, again, those countries that have it love it. 
Um, and so this idea that exporting nuclear uh, power technology is going to make bombs is not true. It's never happened, uh, never will. If you want a bomb, you're going to make a bomb. And that's what was so great about the Iran deal, because it worked. And um, they were backing away completely. And so, and they had, you know, they, they had gone the route of the uranium bomb where you don't need a reactor at all. You just need an enrichment facility, right? Uh, so, so you don't need to, because mm -hmm. you're not creating plutonium. Um, but they were secretly at their Arak facility. Um, they were, that was a weapons reactor. Uh, but we got them mm -hmm. during, in this deal to destroy that reactor. And so they, you know, now they have to start from scratch. Uh, but there's no reason they shouldn't have had to start again anyway. Um, because, you know, the sanctions had worked. Their economy was in pretty bad shape. And that's one of the issues with making it not um, advantageous to have a weapon. We made it not advantageous for them to pr pursue weapons. And so they didn't. They stopped. Now, that didn't mean we, we were going to you know, stop all terrorism or stop, you know, rogue state, anything. It was simply to stop them from having a nuclear mm -hmm. weapon. And so now we blew that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to a little bit towards, um, you know, how we get rid of weapons grade material or get rid of nuclear weapons. You mentioned, I think at the height of the cold war, we were up at a hundred thousand yeah. of these things. Um, so this um, megatons to megawatts program, um, can you, can you walk us through that? The USSR is collapsing. They've got lots and lots of uh, nuclear weapons lying around. Um, institutions are falling apart. So, so how, does this, how does this agreement come about? What was it? It was, it come it was a 20-year program to, to blend down. So the way you get rid of nuclear-grade uranium or plutonium is to blend it down into fuel. So you either come, you know, with with with, with uranium, you take uranium two thirty five because weapons grade uranium is is above ninety three percent, and you blend it down with uranium two thirty eight, you know, depleted uranium. Oh, oh, I should go, go go back to how to do this anyway. So on Earth, rocks and the crust, especially ha, uh, uranium two thirty five is 07 percent of uranium. Okay. 99.3% is uranium-238. Only 0.7% is 235. That's not how, it has to be above 3% 3, 3 to have a chain reaction. So, so you, you mine the rock. Just, it's it's a, like iron ore. You, you mine the rock. It's an ore. And you dissolve it up in acid. And you, you separate out the uranium from everything else. And you get what's called yellow cake, which is your U308. So it's, it's pure uranium oxide. Then you dissolve that in, you combine that with um, fluorine gas, and you make uranium hexafluoride gas. And then you put it through, the old days, you put it through a diffusion thing, which is old and slow. Nowadays, you use a centrifuge. And so you use high-speed centrifuges, and you you spin up this gas mixture, and of course, uranium-238 slightly denser than uranium-235, slightly heavier, so that goes to the outside, and uranium-235 goes to the inside. And so you cascade through 30,000 centrifuges to enrich the uranium-235. Now, it's easy to get it up to 20%, wow. and a little more difficult to get it up to 93%, but still, that's how, that's how you do it. So, um, yeah, so... Uh, Iran didn't have anything over 20%. And 
and and most of that was sent to Russia during this deal. So, kind of bizarre. Okay, so meg megatons to, to, to megawatts is okay. We'll take the Russian highly enriched uranium, and we'll blend it down here. And they would take that and do that blending, and then we would make fuel out of it and burn burn it in our nuclear reactors. So for almost 20 years, 10% of the electricity in America came from Russian weapons, which is amazing. I mean, that, that's really amazing. It worked great. It's the, way, it's the best way to get rid of it. Same thing with plutonium. Now, plutonium is different. You have to uh, form something called a mixed oxide fuel. So you take the plutonium-239 and you, you blend it with, with uranium-235 and 238 and make a MOX fuel, mixed oxide fuel. Now, we were going to do that. We had, uh, at Savannah River, we built this MOX facility that was almost done a couple of years ago, and then we stopped it because of our problems with Russia. And Russia stopped it because they have problems with us. Mm -hmm. So after Crimea, the invasion of Crimea, that, that kind of went off the rails. The problem is people, you know, in many ways, uh, people talk about economics. Okay, the MOX facility wasn't economical. Well, the point was to get rid of weapons, not to make money. <laughs> no, I mean, I, yeah. I know yeah. this is America. I know someone's going to make a buck. I get it. Okay, but there are some things you don't have to only make a buck on. And the same thing when we talk about climate change and, and energy costs and things like that. It's like, oh, my God, it's a penny, you know, a kilowatt hour more expensive than gas. Well, what do you care? I mean, we're trying to solve climate change. We're not trying to make a buck. Uh, but again, mm -hmm. yeah, someone has to make a buck. So, um, so that program to get rid of plutonium is on hold or dead, most likely dead. Uh, it's a beautiful facility, too. And And... And that would be also that would be also to get rid of U.S. nuclear weapons as well. Or, and yeah. so now we generally don't yeah. make uh, mixed oxide fuels. Uh, Japan, France, England do, um, but we we generally do not make that. Uh, and so you know, and you don't really have. And that's because they're that's because they're recycling or reprocessing yes. their fuel. Yep. Uh, not all of it. Pe people tend to think France recycles. No, they they've only recycled a small part of it. Um, but you can do that. And that is, a, you know, a, a technology that, you know, you kind of don't want to lose. That, that, that's another thing in terms of making money is that, well, you kind of want to keep your knowledge of, you know, nuclear knowledge up, up to date, right? You don't want to lose capability so that if you need it in the future, you don't have it. And that's another thing about the MOX facility is like, well, we need to be able to do this sometime. For some reason, who knows? Um, and if you just cut everything because it doesn't make money, then you're you're just natural gas and wind. <laughs> that's all you got. And so, mm -hmm. um, so that's mm -hmm. that's one of those other issues that irks me when people talk about money. It's like, okay, well, what do you want? Yeah, there's there's goals beyond just lining your pockets or squeezing every every cent of profit yeah. out of the process. Yeah. When when you do end up using MOX and let's let's say not related to nuclear weapons, but in terms of recycling fuel, what sort of like impact on the waste stream does that have? Or is this something where you're using that other famous ninety five percent of the fuel? Or? No, actually, recycling of spent nuclear fuel only gets you another maybe 
hundred percent. Okay, so so it doubles the amount of, of energy you get out of it. Uh, to to get ninety percent of the energy out of the fuel, you need to go to fast reactors, and I think we talked about that last time, right? Um, so so yeah. in this reaction where a new where a neutron splits uh, uh, a uranium two thirty five or plutonium two thirty nine. Nucleus in a fast reactor, the neutrons are going so fast that you split everything. You split 238, you split, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and you get a lot more energy out of it. And what at the end you're left with these fission products. Now the fission products, um, some of them are highly radioactive, but they usually have a short half-life. So that's why you sit it in water for four or five years till all of that is gone, or most of that is gone. The only thing that's left that's very radioactive is cesium. Uh, 137 and strontium 90, which have half-lives of 30 years. So if all your waste stream is now all these fission products, then all you have to care about is, you know, two or 300 years, and then they're gone. So that's what's nice about a fast reactor, and that's why the waste stream is better. Are there, like, I feel like a lot of people ascribe kind of magical properties to artificially created isotopes, as if the radioactivity from strontium, say, is, is going to be dramatically worse from a naturally occurring <laughs> radioisotope. I'm sorry. I, I'm going to laugh at that. But um, no, I, I, yeah. you know, a nucleus is a nucleus, and it doesn't really matter where it came from. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And uh, that's what's so, so strange about science and people becoming so anti-science now it's really annoying yeah I, th I think one of the really big obstacles for people advocating nuclear energy is you know in in most other industries if you were to say yeah i mean we, sh we should be less tight on our controls of the pollution from this coal plant you know that would right. be insane uh, because uh coal ash and heavy metals you know demonstrably they, yep. they kill right kill a lot more than nuclear ever has Exactly. But then our, our argument in terms of, um, you know, relaxing the radiation, um, the ultra strict radiation um, levels um, in terms of being able to make nuclear more economic or, or uh, more favorable involves, you know, combating this this LNT hypothesis right. um, and and relaxing what are what are basically like insanely stringent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Controls. No. Um, so so the idea that a beta ray from a potato chip um and i think last time i mentioned potato chips are the most radioactive food um so yeah so it's like we don't care about that but we <laughs> but we will regulate nuclear waste you know more than down to below potato chip level of radiation which is insane and and cost huge amount we don't have a trillion dollars to waste now especially now um and the risks become, you know, the risk of radioactive waste, the risk of, of radiation below 10 rem or 0.1 sievert is so low that it just disappears in the noise. And so you, all you're doing is spending a lot of money um, protecting against something that has no risk. Now, yeah, now nuclear waste is, mm -hmm, yeah, you, mm -hmm. you, you can't just throw it out on the street, but we know how to deal with it easily, cheaply. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're not allowed to because of these ridiculous regulations. And the issue is we can just measure it down to just an infinitesimally yeah. small amount. And so it's always, it's always present. Yes, can we can see it. one atom disintegrating. One atom. <laughs> you can't see one atom of lead or mercury. or, or You need a billion of them. And, but by the same token, you needed a billion disintegrations to actually do anything to you health-wise. So, yeah. 
So one one of the kind of more controversial isotopes, and it sounds like it's it's not because of any particularly dangerous element to it, but is is tritium. And we hear about that, I think, in relation to atmospheric nuclear weapons testing. We hear about that in relation right. to Fukushima's water. Um, you know, the anti-nuclear folks bring it up as, you know, aging nuclear plants having these big tritium releases. Can you just can you just demystify tritium a little yes, bit? Yes, there is no way that anyone can get any harm from tritium anyhow, anywhere, period at any concentration, okay? <laughs> tritium is the weakest radioactive element there is. The beta is only six kilovolts. I mean, it's nothing. It can't pass your skin cell. It can't even pass the cell wall, okay? So, so it's kind of, kind of bizarre. Um, and because of that, uh, we have had no understanding of how to regulate it, okay? Because it's never caused a problem. Now, in the laboratory... You could concentrate it to a point and make someone drink it so it might have a health effect or that won't kill them. But, I mean, that's absurd. You, yeah, you can do anything in the lab. Uh, but in, in nature, the problem is, or the good thing, is that tritium is hydrogen, right? And it likes to be in water. It prefers to be in the water molecule. So even if you drink it, it won't go into your system, it won't go into your tissues because it stays in the water. And then you just eliminate it. Okay, mm -hmm. The same thing in in marine life and in water and ocean water and things like that, it stays in the water. It doesn't concentrate up the food chain. It can't concentrate up the food chain. Okay. It stays in the water. And because it dilutes so easily, if you dumped all the Fukushima tritium water into the ocean off the coast of Fukushima, just go out, you know, just have a pipe that goes out a mile. You won't even see it a hundred feet from the, from the exit. It's just, it's too impossible to concentrate because it likes to stay in water. And, and it's, it's a weak right. beta emitter you were saying, right? So how does, how does that compare to say potassium for oh, it's, chip? it's a thousand times less. Well, maybe 500 wow. times less, but yeah, no, beta in, you know, betas in general, okay. Don't go very far, but the beta in the potato chip will actually get into your tissue. Uh, potassium 40 behaves like, Potassium salt, right? The same thing with cesium-137. Chemically, it behaves like uh, potassium, which behaves like sodium. So again, it's salt. Um, and you will eliminate it pretty quickly. You, you have to eat potato chips every day to increase the potassium-40 level, which people do. <laughs> I know people that eat potato chips every day in a tire bag. And so their potassium-40 levels are almost twice what, what it is in non-potato chip eaters. Uh, but yeah, so again, beta is pretty low anyway. It doesn't do much. You have to, mm -hmm. generally, you have to eat it uh, or mainly breathe it in. Um, and that's, you know, a completely different thing. But tritium doesn't even have that issue. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And I mean, in terms of the, you know, you were going into sort of the deep, um, I don't even know what to call it, geologic uh, stellar history. Um, you know, the world has been a profoundly more radioactive place than it is currently because of um, the decay of, of these right. long-lived yes. elements. In fact, when life began, um, the radiation radi uh, the uh, radiation levels were about 20 times what they are now. Um, but specifically, 2.3 billion years ago is when the eukaryotic cell, now I don't know if you know prokaryote, eukaryote, whatever, uh, eukaryotes have mm -hmm. a nucleus with, with the DNA in it or RNA, both. So, so that, you know, that's what you carry. It's a complex cell. It has organelles, right? It has mitochondria, that kind of thing. And it, it evolved by 
a symbiotic relationship of several microbes at the time. Purple sulfur bacteria became our mitochondria, which of course gives us our, our, our cells and, and, and energy from the Krebs cycle. That was a separate organism that had evolved to deal with oxygen entering the atmosphere for the first time about 2.3 billion years ago. And at that time, radiation levels were about 10 times what they are now. But worse than that was oxygen. Oxygen is toxic to cells. You probably know that, right? Okay. What's one of the biggest issues is how do you deal with oxygen? That's why we talk about antioxidants today in your food. Okay. Because oxygen produces 10 times the destruction, same kind of destruction as radiation does. Okay. So, so the oxygen is what you're worried about, not, not radiation, until you get above 10 rem. Okay. Um, so what radiation does in the body is it, it whips through and it knocks off an electron. Okay. And, you know, as it goes through your body, depending upon the level of radiation and if it's gamma or whatever, but say a gamma ray, it goes, goes right through your body and it knocks off a bunch of electrons. Um, they don't do that much damage on itself. The gamma ray doesn't do that much damage. What happens is those electrons then go and knock other electrons off. You have this cascading process for every gamma ray, you get a thousand electron cascades and that causes oxidation because losing electron is an, ox is an oxidative process. Same thing with oxygen. Oxygen rips off electrons off of your DNA, just like you know uh, radiation does, except it's much more efficient and there's much more of it in your body at any one time. So uh, the cells, when they developed in the presence of oxygen, had to deal with this. At the same time, they had to deal with radiation. So our immune system is very well adapted to dealing with oxygen, and to dealing with low levels of radiation, below about 10 rem. Actually, 20 rem, but who's counting? Um, and that's why we don't have any problem with background levels of radiation, which are, you know, a thousand times most of the, most of the uh, regulatory limits we have to deal with with nuclear waste, which is ridiculous. James, we could talk all day, <laughs> man. But I think, um, I think we'll wrap it up for this episode here. Um, thanks again for, for coming on and, and demystifying a little bit um, the question around nuclear weapons and, and nuclear energy. It was certainly, I wouldn't say it's complete news to me, but the degree to which the destructive potential of a nuclear bomb is, is kinetic and not, not right. radiation-based was, uh, was interesting. And just, you know, just trying to get a sense of the power of these things, you know, again, in comparison to that visual example we had with, uh, with the right. tragedy of the Beirut so, uh, explosion. So it's, increase uh, that 7,000 times. Yeah. That's terrifying. And that's from a, that's from a single, a single kind of moderately sized, uh, nuclear weapon. Right. An atomic weapon with a, with a hydrogen bomb, pretty much most of Lebanon would be gone. Wow. Wow. And it sounds like the best way to, to get rid of this nuclear material, reduce the amount in the world is, uh, is in civilian nuclear reactors. Yeah, that's the only way to do it. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, I, 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 I should mention the Megatons and Megawatts program destroyed 20,000 bombs worth of uranium-235. <laughs> wow. So that was very successful. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that also meant that we, we did a lot less uranium mining because we were uh, busy burning up nuclear weapons instead of mining. Yeah, the, the uranium miners were not happy with this program. I bet, I bet. Yeah. Alrighty, James, we're going to leave it there for now, but thanks again for coming on the show. Great. Thanks so much.
If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.